Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 10 of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant The Mystery of Edwin Drood The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens Chapter 10 Smoothing the Way It has been often enough remarked that women have a curious power of divining the characters of men, which would seem to be innate and instinctive, seeing that it is arrived at through no patient process of reasoning, that it can give no satisfactory or sufficient account of itself, and that it pronounces in the most confident manner, even against accumulated observation on the part of the other sex. But it has not been quite so often remarked that this power, fallible like every other human attribute, is for the most part absolutely incapable of self-revision, and that, when it has delivered an adverse opinion, which by all human lights is subsequently proved to have failed, it is undistinguishable from prejudice, in respect of its determination not to be corrected. Nay, the very possibility of contradiction or disproof, however remote, communicates to this feminine judgment from the first, in nine cases out of ten, the weakness attendant on the testimony of an interested witness. So personally and strongly does the fair diviner connect herself with her divination. "'Now, don't you think, Ma dear,' said the minor canon to his mother one day as she sat at her knitting in his little book-room, "'that you are rather hard on Mr. Neville?' "'No, I do not, Sep,' returned the old lady." "'Let us discuss it, Ma.' "'I have no objection to discuss it, Sep. "'I trust, my dear, I am always open to discussion.' There was a vibration in the old lady's cap, as though she internally added, "'And I should like to see the discussion that would change my mind.' "'Very good, Ma,' said her conciliatory son. "'There is nothing like being open to discussion.' "'I hope not, my dear,' returned the old lady, evidently shut to it. "'Well, Mr. Neville, on that unfortunate occasion, commits himself under provocation.' "'And under mulled wine,' added the old lady. "'I must admit the wine, though I believe the two young men were much alike in that regard.' "'I don't,' said the old lady.' "'Why not, Ma?' "'Because I don't,' said the old lady. "'Still I am quite open to discussion.' "'But, my dear Ma, I cannot see how we are to discuss if you take that line.' "'Blame Mr. Neville for it, Sep, and not me,' 
said the old lady, with stately severity. "'My dear Ma, why Mr. Neville?' "'Because,' said Mrs. Crisp-Sparkle, retiring on first principles, "'he came home intoxicated, and did great discredit to this house, "'and showed great disrespect to this family.' "'That is not to be denied, Ma. "'He was then, and he is now, very sorry for it.' "'But for Mr. Jasper's well-bred consideration in coming up to me "'next day after service in the nave itself, with his gown still on, "'and expressing his hope that I had not been greatly alarmed "'or had my rest violently broken, "'I believe I might never have heard of that disgraceful transaction.' said the old lady. "'To be candid, Ma, I think I should have kept it from you, if I could, though I had not decidedly made up my mind. I was following Jasper out to confer with him on the subject, and to consider the expediency of his and my jointly hushing the thing up on all accounts, when I found him speaking to you. Then it was too late.' "'Too late indeed, Sep. "'He was still as pale as gentlemanly ashes "'at what had taken place in his rooms overnight. "'If I had kept it from you, Ma, "'you may be sure that it would have been for your peace and quiet, "'and for the good of the young men, "'and in my best discharge of my duty, according to my lights.' "'The old lady immediately walked across the room and kissed him, saying, "'Of course! "'Course, my dear Sepp, I am sure of that.' "'However, it became the town talk,' said Mr. Crisp-Sparkle, rubbing his ear, as his mother resumed her seat and her knitting, "'and passed out of my power.' "'And I said then, Sepp,' returned the old lady, "'that I thought ill of Mr. Neville, and I say now that I think ill of Mr. Neville.' "'And I said then, and I say now, that I hope Mr. Neville may come to good. "'But I don't believe he will.' "'Here the cap vibrated again considerably. "'I am sorry to hear you say so, Ma.' "'And I am sorry to say so, my dear,' interposed the old lady, knitting on firmly. "'But I can't help it.' For pursued the minor canon, "'It is undeniable that Mr. Neville is exceedingly industrious and attentive, "'and that he improves apace, and that he has, I hope I may say, an attachment for me.' "'There is no merit in the last article, my dear,' said the old lady quickly, "'and if he says there is, I think the worst of him for the boast. "'But, my dear Ma, he never said there was.' "'Perhaps not.' said the old lady. Still, I don't see that it greatly signifies. There was no impatience in the pleasant look with which Mr. Chris Sparkle contemplated the pretty old piece of china as it knitted, but there was certainly a humorous sense of it not being a piece of china to argue with very closely. Besides, Sepp, ask yourself what he would be without his sister— you know what an influence she has over him. You know what a capacity she has. You know that whenever he reads with you, he reads with her. Give her her fair share of your praise. And how much do you leave for him?' 
With these words, Mr. Crisparkle fell into a little reverie, in which he thought of several things. He thought of the times he had seen the brother and sister together in deep converse over one of his own old college books. Now, in the rimy mornings, when he had made those sharpening pilgrimages to Cloisterham Weir, now, in the sombre evenings, when he faced the wind at sunset, having climbed his favourite outlook, a beetling fragment of monastery ruin, and the two studious figures passed below him, along the margin of the river in which the town's fires and lights already shone, making the landscape bleaker. He thought how the consciousness had stolen upon him that in teaching one, he was teaching two, and how he had almost insensibly adapted his explanations to both minds, that with which his own was daily in contact, and that which he only approached through it. He thought of the gossip that had reached him from the nun's house, to the effect that Helena, whom he had mistrusted as so proud and fierce, submitted herself to the fairy bride, as he called her, and learnt from her what she knew. He thought of the picturesque alliance between those two, externally so very different. He thought, perhaps most of all, could it be that these things which were yet but so many weeks old had become an integral part of his life? As, whenever the reverend Septimus fell amusing, his good mother took it to be an infallible sign that he wanted support, the blooming old lady made all haste to the dining-room closet to produce from it the support embodied in a glass of Constantina and a home-made biscuit. It was a most wonderful closet, worthy of Cloisterham and of Minor Cannon Corner. Above it, a portrait of Handel in a flowing wig beamed down at the spectator with a knowing air of being up to the contents of the closet, and a musical air of intending to combine all its harmonies in one delicious fugue. No common closet, with a vulgar door on hinges, opening all at once and leaving nothing to be disclosed by degrees. This rare closet had a lock in mid-air, where two perpendicular slides met, the one falling down and the other pushing up. The upper slide, on being pulled down, leaving the lower a double mystery, revealed deep shelves of pickle-jars, jam-pots, tin canisters, spice-boxes, and agreeably outlandish vessels of blue and white, the luscious lodgings of preserved tamarinds and ginger. Every benevolent inhabitant of this retreat had his name inscribed upon his stomach. The pickles, in a uniform of rich brown double-breasted buttoned coat, and yellow or sombre drab continuations, announced their portly forms in printed capitals as walnut, gherkin, onion, cabbage, cauliflower, mixed, and other members of that noble family. The jams, as being of a less masculine temperament, and as wearing curl-papers announce themselves in feminine calligraphy like a soft whisper, to be raspberry, gooseberry, apricot, plum, damson, apple, and peach. The scene closing on these charmers, and the lower slide ascending, oranges were revealed, attended by a mighty Japan sugar-box, to temper their acerbity if unripe. Home-made biscuits waited at the court of these powers, accompanied by a goodly fragment of plum-cake, 
and various slender ladies' fingers to be dipped into sweet wine and kissed. Lowest of all, a compact leaden vault enshrined the sweet wine and a stock of cordials, whence issued whispers of Seville orange, lemon, almond, and caraway seed. There was a crowning air upon this closet of closets, of having been for ages hummed through by the cathedral bell and organ, until those venerable bees had made sublimated honey of everything in store, and it was always observed that every dipper among the shelves, deep as has been noted, and swallowing up head, shoulders, and elbows, came forth again mellow-faced, and seeming to have undergone a saccharine transfiguration. The Reverend Septimus yielded himself up, quite as willing a victim to a nauseous medicinal herb-closet, as presided over by the china shepherdess, as to this glorious cupboard, to what amazing infusions of gentian, peppermint, gillyflower, sage, parsley, thyme, rue, rosemary, and dandelion, did his courageous stomach submit itself. In what wonderful wrappers, enclosing layers of dried leaves, would he swathe his rosy and contented face, if his mother suspected him of a toothache? What botanical blotches would he cheerfully stick upon his cheek or forehead, if the dear old lady convinced him of an imperceptible pimple there? Into this herbaceous penitentiary, situated on an upper staircase landing, a low and narrow whitewashed cell, where bunches of dried leaves hung from rusty hooks in the ceiling, and were spread out upon shelves, in company with portentous bottles, would the Reverend Septimus submissively be led, like the highly popular lamb who has so long and unresistingly been led to the slaughter, and there would he, unlike that lamb, bore nobody but himself, not even doing that much, so that the old lady were busy and pleased, he would quietly swallow what were given him, merely taking a corrective dip of hands and face into the great bowl of dried rose-leaves, and into the other great bowl of dried lavender, and then would go out, as confident in the sweetening powers of cloisterum weir, and a wholesome mind, as Lady Macbeth was hopeless of those of all the seas that roll. In the present instance the good minor canon took his glass of Constantina with an excellent grace, and so supported to his mother's satisfaction, applied himself to the remaining duties of the day. In their orderly and punctual progress they brought round vesper service and twilight. The cathedral being very cold, he set off for a brisk trot after service, the trot to end in a charge at his favourite fragment of ruin, which was to be carried by storm without a pause for breath. He carried it in a masterly manner, and not breathed even then stood looking down upon the river. The river at Cloisterham is sufficiently near the sea to throw up oftentimes a quantity of seaweed. An unusual quantity had come in with the last tide, and this and the confusion of the water, and the restless dripping and flapping of the noisy gulls, and an angry light out seaward beyond the brown-sailed barges that were turning black, foreshadowed a stormy night. In his mind he was contrasting the wild and noisy sea with the quiet harbour of Minor Cannon Corner, when Helena and Neville Landless passed below him. 
He had had the two together in his thoughts all day, and at once climbed down to speak to them together. The footing was rough in an uncertain light for any tread save that of a good climber, but the minor cannon was as good a climber as most men, and stood beside them before many good climbers would have been halfway down. "'A wild evening, Miss Landless. Do you not find your usual walk with your brother too exposed and cold for the time of year?' or at all events when the sun is down and the weather is driving in from the sea. Helena thought not. It was their favourite walk. It was very retired. It is very retired, assented Mr. Crisparkle, laying hold of his opportunity straightway and walking on with them. It is a place of all others where one can speak without interruption, as I wish to do. Mr. Neville, "'I believe you tell your sister everything that passes between us.' "'Everything, sir.' "'Consequently,' said Mr. Crisparkle, "'your sister is aware that I have repeatedly urged you to make some kind of apology for that unfortunate occurrence which befell on the night of your arrival here?' In saying it he looked at her, and not to him. Therefore it was she, and not he, who replied, "'Yes.' "'I call it unfortunate, Miss Helena,' resumed Mr. Crisparkle, "'for as much as it certainly has engendered a prejudice against Neville. "'There is a notion about that he is a dangerously passionate fellow, "'of such uncontrollable and furious temper. "'He is really avoided as such.' "'I have no doubt he is, poor fellow,' said Helena, "'with a look of proud compassion at her brother.' expressing a deep sense of his being ungenerously treated. I should be quite sure of it, from your saying so. But what you tell me is confirmed by suppressed hints and references that I meet with every day. Now, Miss Crisparkle again resumed, in a tone of mild though firm persuasion, is not this to be regretted, and ought it not to be amended? These are early days of Neville's in Cloisterham, and I have no fear of his outliving such a prejudice and proving himself to have been misunderstood. But how much wiser to take action at once than to trust to uncertain time! Besides, apart from its being politic, it is right, for there can be no question that Neville was wrong. He was provoked, Helena submitted. "'He was the assailant,' Mr. Crisparkle submitted. They walked on in silence, until Helena raised her eyes to the minor canon's face, and said, almost reproachfully, "'Oh, Mr. Crisparkle, would you have Neville throw himself at young Drood's feet, or at Mr. Jasper's, who maligns him every day? In your heart you cannot mean it. From your heart you could not do it if his case were yours. "'I have represented to Mr. Crisparkle, Helena,' said Neville, with a glance of deference towards his tutor, "'that if I could do it from my heart, I would. But I cannot, and I revolt from the pretence. You forget, however, that to put the case to Mr. Crisparkle as his own is to suppose to have done what I did.' "'I ask his pardon,' said Helena. 
"'You see,' remarked Mr. Crisparkle, again laying hold of his opportunity, though with a moderate and delicate touch, "'you both instinctively acknowledge that Neville did wrong. Then why stop short and not otherwise acknowledge it?' "'Is there no difference?' asked Helena, with a little faltering in her manner, "'between submission to a generous spirit and submission to a base or trivial one?' Before the worthy minor canon was quite ready with his argument in reference to this nice distinction, Neville struck in. "'Help me to clear myself with Mr. Crisparkle, Helena. Help me to convince him that I cannot be the first to make concessions without mockery and falsehood. My nature must be changed before I can do so, and it is not changed.' I am sensible of inexpressible affront, and deliberate aggravation of inexpressible affront, and I am angry. The plain truth is, I am still as angry when I recall that night as I was that night. Neville, hinted the minor canon with a steady countenance, you have repeated that former action of your hands, which I so much dislike. I am sorry for it, sir, but it was involuntary. I confessed that I was still as angry. And I confess, said Mr. Crisparkle, that I hoped for better things. I am sorry to disappoint you, sir, but it would be far worse to deceive you, and I should deceive you grossly if I pretended that you had softened me in this respect. The time may come when your powerful influence will do even that with the difficult pupil whose antecedents you know, but it has not come yet. Is this so, and in spite of my struggles against myself, Helena? She, whose dark eyes were watching the effect of what he said on Mr. Crisparkle's face, replied, to Mr. Crisparkle, not to him, It is so. After a short pause, she answered the slightest look of inquiry conceivable in her brother's eyes, with as slight an affirmative bend of her own head, and he went on. "'I have never yet had the courage to say to you, sir, what in full openness I ought to have said when you first talked with me on this subject. It is not easy to say, and I have been withheld by a fear of its seeming ridiculous, which is very strong upon me, down to this last moment, and might, but for my sister, prevent my being quite open with you even now. I admire Miss Budd, sir, so very much, that I cannot bear her being treated with conceit or indifference, and even if I did not feel that I had an injury against young Drood on my own account, I should feel that I had an injury against him on hers. Mr. Crisparkle, in utter amazement, looked at Helena for corroboration, and met in her expressive face full corroboration, and a plea for advice. "'The young lady of whom you speak is, as you know, Mr. Neville, "'Shortly to be married,' said Mr. Crisparkle gravely. "'Therefore, your admiration, if it be of that special nature which you seem to indicate, "'is outrageously misplaced. 
Moreover, it is monstrous that you should take upon yourself to be the young lady's champion against her chosen husband. Besides, you have seen them only once. The young lady has become your sister's friend, and I wonder that your sister, even on her behalf, has not checked you in this irrational and culpable fancy. She has tried, sir, but uselessly. Husband or no husband, that fellow is incapable of the feeling with which I am inspired towards the beautiful young creature whom he treats like a doll. I say, he is as incapable of it as he is unworthy of her. I say, she is sacrificed in being bestowed upon him. I say that I love her, and despise and hate him. This with a face so flushed, and a gesture so violent, that his sister crossed to his side and caught his arm, remonstrating, Neville, Neville. Thus recalled to himself, he quickly became sensible of having lost the guard he had set upon his passionate tendency, and covered his face with his hand as one repentant and wretched. Mr. Crisparkle, watching him attentively, and at the same time meditating how to proceed, walked on for some paces in silence. Then he spoke. "'Mr. Neville, Mr. Neville, I am sorely grieved to see in you more traces of a character as sullen, angry, and wild as the night now closing in. They are of too serious an aspect to leave me the resource of treating the infatuation you have disclosed as undeserving serious consideration. I give it very serious consideration, and I speak to you accordingly. The feud between you and young Drood must not go on. I cannot permit it to go on any longer, knowing what I now know from you, and you living under my roof. Whatever prejudiced and unauthorised constructions your blind and envious wrath may put upon his character, it is a full, good-natured character. I know I can trust to it for that. Now pray, observe what I am about to say. On reflection, and on your sister's representation, I am willing to admit that, in making peace with young Drood, you have a right to be met half-way. I will engage that you shall be, and even that young Drood shall make the first advance. This condition fulfilled, you will pledge me the honour of a Christian gentleman, that the quarrel is for ever at an end on your side. What may be in your heart when you give him your hand, can only be known to the searcher of all hearts, but it will never go well with you, if there be any treachery there. So far as to that, next, as to what I must again speak of as your infatuation, I understand it to have been confided to me, and to be known to no other person save your sister and yourself. Do I understand aright? Helena answered in a low tone, It is only known to us three who are here together. It is not known at all to the young lady, your friend, on my soul, no. I require, then, to give me your similar and solemn pledge, Mr. Neville, that it shall remain the secret it is, and that you will take no other action whatsoever upon it 
than endeavouring, and that most earnestly, to erase it from your mind. I will not tell you that it will soon pass. I will not tell you that it is the fancy of the moment. I will not tell you that such caprices have their rise and fall among the young and ardent every hour. I will leave you undisturbed in the belief that it has few parallels or none, that it will abide with you for a long time, and that it will be very difficult to conquer. So much the more weight I shall attach to the pledge I require from you, when it is unreservedly given. The young man twice or thrice essayed to speak, but failed. "'Let me leave you with your sister, whom it is time you took home,' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'You will find me alone in my room by and by.' "'Pray do not leave us yet,' Helena implored him. "'Another minute.' "'I should not,' said Neville, pressing his hand upon his face, "'have needed so much as another minute, "'if you had been less patient with me, Mr. Crisparkle, "'less considerate of me, "'and less unpretendingly good and true. "'Oh, if in my childhood I had known such a guide!' "'Follow your guide now, Neville,' murmured Helena, "'and follow him to heaven.' "'There was that in her tone "'which broke the good minor canon's voice.' or it would have repudiated her exultation of him. As it was, he laid a finger on his lips, and looked towards her brother. "'To say that I give both pledges, Mr. Crisparkle, out of my innermost heart, and to say that there is no treachery in it, is to say nothing.' Thus Neville greatly moved. "'I beg your forgiveness for my miserable lapse into a burst of passion.' "'Not mine, Neville, not mine. "'You know with whom forgiveness lies, "'as the highest attribute conceivable. "'Miss Helena, you and your brother are twin children. "'You came into this world with the same dispositions, "'and you passed your younger days together, "'surrounded by the same adverse circumstances. "'What you have overcome in yourself, "'can you not overcome in him?' You see the rock that lies in his course. Who but you can keep him clear of it? Who but you, sir, replied Helena, what is my influence or my weak wisdom compared with yours? You have the wisdom of love, returned the minor canon, and it was the highest wisdom ever known upon this earth, remember. As to mine, but the least said of that commonplace commodity, the better. "'Good night.' She took the hand he offered her, and gratefully and almost reverently raised it to her lips. "'Tut!' said the minor canon softly. "'I am much overpaid.' And turned away. Retracing his steps towards the cathedral close, he tried, as he went along in the dark, to think out the best means of bringing to pass what he had promised to effect and what must somehow be done. "'I shall probably be asked to marry them,' he reflected, "'and I would they were married and gone. "'But this presses first. He debated principally whether he should write to young Drood, or whether he should speak to Jasper. The consciousness of being popular with the whole cathedral establishment inclined him to the latter course, and the well-timed sight of the lighted gatehouse decided him to take it. 
I will strike while the iron is hot, he said, and see him now. Jasper was lying asleep on a couch before the fire, when, having ascended the postern stair and received no answer to his knock at the door, Mr. Crisparkle gently turned the handle and looked in. Long afterwards he had cause to remember how Jasper sprang from the couch in a delirious state between sleeping and waking, and crying out, "'What is the matter? Who did it?' "'It is only I, Jasper. I am sorry to have disturbed you.' The glare of his eyes settled down into a look of recognition, and he moved a chair or two to make a way to the fireside. "'I was dreaming at a great rate, and am glad to be disturbed from an indigestive after-dinner sleep, not to mention that you are always welcome.' "'Thank you.' "'I am not confident,' returned Mr. Crisparkle, as he sat himself down in the easy-chair placed for him, "'that the subject will at first sight be quite as welcome as myself. But I am a minister of peace, and I pursue my subject in the interests of peace. In a word, Jasper, I want to establish peace between these two young fellows.' A very perplexing expression took hold of Mr. Jasper's face, a very perplexing expression, too, for Mr. Crisparkle could make nothing of it. How was Jasper's inquiry, in a low and slow voice, after a silence? For the how I come to you. I want to ask you to do me the great favour and service of interposing with your nephew— I have already interposed with Mr. Neville, and getting him to write you a short note in his lively way, saying that he is willing to shake hands. I know what a good-natured fellow he is, and what influence you have with him. And without in the least defending Mr. Neville, we must all admit that he was bitterly stung. Jasper turned that perplexed face towards the fire. Mr. Crisparkle, continuing to observe it, found it even more perplexing than before, inasmuch as it seemed to denote, which could hardly be, some close internal calculation. "'I know that you are not predisposed in Mr. Neville's favour, the minor canon was going on, when Jasper stopped him. "'You have cause to say so. I am not, indeed.' "'Undoubtedly, and I admit his lamentable violence of temper, though I hope he and I will get the better of it between us. But I have exacted a very solemn promise from him as to his future demeanour towards your nephew, so if you do kindly interpose, I am sure he will keep it.' "'You are always responsible and trustworthy, Mr. Crisparkle?' Do you really feel sure that you can answer for him so confidently? I do. The perplexed and perplexing look vanished. Then you relieve my mind of a great dread and a heavy weight, said Jasper. I will do it. Mr. Crisparkle, delighted by the swiftness and completeness of his success, acknowledged it in the handsomest terms. 
"'I will do it,' repeated Jasper, "'for the comfort of having your guarantee "'against my vague and unfounded fears. "'You will laugh. "'But uh, do you keep a diary?' "'A line for a day, not more.' "'A line for a day would be quite as much "'as my uneventful life would need, heaven knows,' "'said Jasper, taking a book from a desk. "'But that my diary is, in fact, "'a diary of Ned's life, too. "'You will laugh at this entry. "'You will guess when it was made. "'Past midnight.' After what I have now seen, I have a morbid dread upon me of some horrible consequence resulting to my dear boy that I cannot reason with or in any way contend against. All my efforts are in vain. The demoniacal passion of this Neville Landless, his strength in his fury, and his savage rage for the destruction of its object appall me. So profound is the impression that twice since I have gone into my dear boy's room to assure myself of his sleeping safely and not lying dead in his blood. Here is another entry next morning. Ned up and away, light-hearted and unsuspicious as ever, he laughed when I cautioned him, and he said he was as good a man as Neville Landless any day. I told him that it might be, but he was not as bad a man. He continued to make light of it, but I travelled with him as far as I could, and left him most unwillingly. I am unable to shake off these dark intangible presentiments of evil, if feelings founded upon staring facts are so to be called. Again and again, said Jasper in conclusion, twirling the leaves of the book before putting it by, I have relapsed into these moods, as other entries show. But I have now your assurance at my back, and shall put it in my book, and make it an antidote to my black humours. Such an antidote, I hope, returned Mr. Crisparkle, as will induce you before long to consign the black humours to the flames. I ought to be the last to find fault with you this evening, when you have met my wishes so freely. But I must say, Jasper, that your devotion to your nephew has made you exaggerate here. You are my witness, said Jasper, shrugging his shoulders, what my state of mind honestly was that night before I sat down to write, and in what words I expressed it. You remember objecting to a word I used as being too strong? It was a stronger word than any in my diary. Well, well, try the antidote, rejoined Mr. Crisparkle, and may it give you a brighter and better view of the case. We will discuss it no more now. I have to thank you for myself. Thank you sincerely. You shall find, said Jasper, as they shook hands, that I will not do the thing you wish me to do by halves. I will take care that Ned, giving way at all, shall give way thoroughly. On the third day after this conversation, he called on Mr. Crisparkle with the following letter. 
"'My dear Jack, I am touched by your account of the interview with Mr. Crisparkle, whom I much respect and esteem. At once I openly say that I forgot myself on that occasion quite as much as Mr. Landless did, and that I wish that bygone to be a bygone, and all to be right again.' "'Look here, dear old boy. Ask Mr. Landless to dinner on Christmas Eve. The better the day, the better the deed. And let there be only we three. And let us shake hands all round there and then, and say no more about it. My dear Jack, ever your most affectionate, Edwin Drood. P.S. Love to Miss Pussy at the next music lesson. "'You expect Mr. Neville, then?' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'I count upon his coming,' said Mr. Jasper. End of chapter 10 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during January 2008《Of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood. The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 11. A Picture and a Ring. Behind the most ancient part of Holborn, London, where certain gabled houses, some centuries of age, still stand looking on the public way, as if disconsolately looking for the old bourne that has long run dry, is a little nook, composed of two irregular quadrangles called Staple Inn. It is one of those nooks, the turning into which out of the clashing street, imparts to the relieved pedestrian the sensation of having put cotton in his ears, and velvet soles on his boots. It is one of those nooks where a few smoky sparrows twitter in smoky streets, as though they called to one another, Let us play at country, and where a few feet of garden mould and a few yards of gravel enable them to do that refreshing violence to their tiny understandings. Moreover, it is one of those nooks which are legal nooks, and it contains a little hall with a little lantern in its roof, to what obstructive purpose is devoted, and at whose expense this history knoweth not. In the days when Cloisterham took offence at the existence of a railroad afar off, as menacing that sensitive constitution, the property of us Britons, the odd fortune of which sacred institution it is to be in exactly equal degrees croaked about, trembled for, and boasted of, whatever happens to anything, anywhere in the world. In those days no neighbouring architecture of lofty proportions had arisen to overshadow Staple Inn. The westering sun bestowed bright glances on it, and the south-west wind blew into it unimpeded. Neither wind nor sun, however, favoured Staple Inn one December afternoon towards six o'clock, when it was filled with fog, and candles shed murky and blurred rays through the windows of all its then-occupied sets of chambers. 
notably from a set of chambers in a corner-house in the little inner quadrangle, presenting in black and white over its ugly portal the mysterious inscription, P. J. T. 1747. In which set of chambers, never having troubled his head about the inscription, unless to bethink himself at odd times of glancing up at it, that happily it might mean, perhaps John Thomas, or perhaps Joe Tyler, sat Mr. Grugius, writing by his fire. Who could have told, by looking at Mr. Grugius, whether he had ever known ambition or disappointment? He had been bred to the bar, and had laid himself out for chamber practice, to draw deeds, convey the wise it call, as Pistol says. But conveyancing and he had made such a very indifferent marriage of it, that they had separated by consent, if there can be said to be separation, where there has never been coming together. No, coy conveyancing would not come to Mr. Grugius. She was wooed, not one, and they went their several ways. But an arbitration being blown towards him by some unaccountable wind, and he gaining great credit in it as one indefatigable in seeking out right and doing right, a pretty fat receivership was next blown into his pocket by a wind more traceable to its source. So, by chance, he had found his niche, receiver and agent now to two rich estates, and deputing their legal business in an amount worth having to a firm of solicitors on the floor below, he had snuffed out his ambition, supposing him to have ever lighted it, and had settled down with his snuffers for the rest of his life under the dry vine and fig tree of P. J. T., who planted in 1747. Many accounts and account-books, many files of correspondence, and several strong-boxes, garnished Mr. Grugius' room. They can scarcely be represented as having lumbered it, so conscientious and precise was their orderly arrangement. The apprehension of dying suddenly, and leaving one fact or one figure, with any incompleteness or obscurity attaching to it, would have stretched Mr. Grugius stone-dead any day. The largest fidelity to a trust was the life-blood of the man. There are sorts of life-blood that course more quickly, more gaily, more attractively, but there is no better sort in circulation. There was no luxury in his room. Even its comforts were limited to its being dry and warm, and having a snug though faded fireside. What may be called its private life was confined to the hearth, an old easy-chair, and an old-fashioned occasional round table that was brought out upon the rug after business hours from a corner where it elsewise remained turned up like a shining mahogany shield. Behind it, when standing thus on the defensive, was a closet, usually containing something good to drink. An outer room was the clerk's room. Mr. Grugius's sleeping-room was across the common stair, and he held some not empty cellarage at the bottom of the common stair. Three hundred days in the year at least, 
he crossed over to the hotel in Furnival's Inn for his dinner, and after dinner crossed back again, to make the most of these simplicities, until it should become broad business day once more, with P.J.T., date 1747. As Mr. Grugius sat and wrote by his fire that afternoon, so did the clerk of Mr. Grugius sit and write by his fire. A pale, puffy-faced, dark-haired person of thirty, with big dark eyes that wholly wanted lustre, and a dissatisfied doughy complexion that seemed to ask to be sent to the baker's, this attendant was a mysterious being, possessed of some strange power over Mr. Grugius. As though he had been called into existence, like a fabulous familiar, by a magic spell which had failed when required to dismiss him, he stuck tight to Mr. Grugius's stool, although Mr. Grugius's comfort and convenience would manifestly have been advanced by dispossessing him. A gloomy person, with tangled locks, and a general air of having been reared under the shadow of that baleful tree of Java which has given shelter to more lies than the whole botanical kingdom, Mr. Grugius nevertheless treated him with unaccountable consideration. "'Now, Bazard,' said Mr. Grugius, on the entrance of his clerk, looking up from his papers as he arranged them for the night, "'what is in the wind besides fog?' "'Mr. Drood,' said Bazard. "'What of him?' "'Has called,' said Bazard. "'You might have shown him in.' "'I am doing it,' said Bazard. The visitor came in accordingly. "'Dear me,' said Mr. Grugius, looking round his pair of office candles, "'I thought you had called and merely left your name and gone. How do you do, Mr. Edwin? Dear me, you're choking!' "'It's this fog,' returned Edwin, "'and it makes my eyes smart, like cayenne pepper.' "'Is it really so bad as that? Pray, undo your wrappers. It's fortunate I have so good a fire.' "'But Mr. Bazard has taken care of me.' "'No, I haven't,' said Mr. Bazard at the door. "'Ah, then it follows that I must have taken care of myself without observing it,' said Mr. Grugius. "'Pray be seated in my chair. No, no, I beg, coming out of such an atmosphere, in my chair.' Edwin took the easy-chair in the corner, and the fog he had brought in with him, and the fog he took off with his great-coat and neck-shawl, was speedily licked up by the eager fire. "'I look,' said Edwin, smiling, "'as if I had come to stop.' "'By the by,' cried Mr. Grugius, "'excuse my interrupting you. Do stop. The fog may clear in an hour or so. We can have dinner in from just across Hoban.' You had better take your cayenne pepper here than outside. Pray, stop and dine. You are very kind, said Edwin, glancing about him as though attracted by the notion of a new and relishing sort of gypsy party. Not at all, said Mr. Grugius. You are very kind to join issue with a bachelor in chambers and take pot luck. And I'll ask— 
said Mr. Grugius, dropping his voice and speaking with a twinkling eye, as if inspired by a bright thought, "'I'll ask Bazard. He mightn't like it else.' "'Bazard!' Bazard appeared. "'Dine presently, with Mr. Drood and me.' "'If I am ordered to dine, of course I will, sir,' was the gloomy answer. "'Save the man!' cried Mr. Grugius. "'You're not ordered. You're invited.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Bazard. "'In that case, I don't care if I do.' "'That's arranged. And perhaps you wouldn't mind,' said Mr. Grugius, "'stepping over to the hotel at Furnival's, "'and asking them to send in materials for laying the cloth. "'For dinner we'll have a tureen of the hottest and strongest soup available, "'and we'll have the best-made dish that can be recommended, "'and we'll have a joint, such as a haunch of mutton, "'and we'll have a goose or a turkey, or any little stuffed thing of that sort that may happen to be in the bill of fare, in short, we'll have whatever there is on hand. These liberal directions Mr. Grugius issued with his usual air of reading an inventory, or repeating a lesson, or doing anything else by rote. Bazard, after drawing out the round table, withdrew to execute them. "'It was a little delicate, you see,' said Mr. Grugius, in a lower tone, after his clerk's departure, about employing him in the foraging or commissariat department, because he mightn't like it. "'He seems to have his own way, sir,' remarked Edwin. "'His own way?' returned Mr. Grugius. "'Oh, dear, no, poor fellow, you quite mistake him. If he had his own way, he wouldn't be here.' "'I wonder where he would be,' Edwin thought. But he only thought it because Mr. Grugius came and stood beside him with his back to the other corner of the fire, and his shoulder-blades against the chimney-piece, and collected his skirts for easy conversation. "'I take it that, without having the gift of prophecy, that you have done me the favour of looking in to mention that you are going down yonder, where I can tell you you are expected.' and to offer to execute any little commission from me to my charming ward, and perhaps to sharpen me up a bit in any proceedings, eh, Mr. Edwin? I called before going down as an act of attention. Of attention, said Mr. Grugius. Of course. Not of impatience. Impatience, sir? Mr. Grugius had meant to be arch, not that he in the remotest degree expressed that meaning, and had brought himself into scarcely supportable proximity with the fire, as if to burn the fullest effect of his archness into himself, as other subtle impressions are burnt into hard metals. But his archness suddenly flying before the composed face and manner of his visitor, and only the fire remaining, he started and rubbed himself down. "'I have lately been down yonder,' said Mr. Grugius, rearranging his skirts. "'And that was what I referred to when I said I could tell you you are expected.' "'Indeed, sir! Yes, 
I knew that Pussy was looking out for me. Do you keep a cat down there? asked Mr. Grugius. Edwin coloured a little as he explained. I call Rosa Pussy. Oh, really, said Mr. Grugius, smoothing down his head. That's very affable. Edwin glanced at his face, uncertain whether or no he seriously objected to the appellation. But Edwin might as well have glanced at the face of a clock. A pet name, sir, he explained again. Hmm, said Mr. Grugius with a nod but with such an extraordinary compromise between an unqualified assent and a qualified dissent, that his visitor was much disconcerted. "'Did per Rosa?' Edwin began by way of recovering himself. "'Perosa?' repeated Mr. Grugius. I, "'I was going to say pussy, and change my mind. Did she tell you anything about the landlesses?' No, said Mr. Grugius. What is the landlesses? An estate? A villa? A farm? A brother and sister. The sister is at the nun's house, and has become a great friend of her— Perosa's? Mr. Grugius stuck in, with a fixed face. She is a strikingly handsome girl, sir, and I thought she might have been described to you, or presented to you, perhaps. Neither, said Mr. Grugius, but here is Bazard. Bazard returned, accompanied by two waiters, an immovable waiter and a flying waiter, and the three brought in with them as much fog, and gave a new roar to the fire. The flying waiter, who had brought everything on his shoulders, laid the cloth with amazing rapidity and dexterity, while the immovable waiter, who had brought nothing, found fault with him. The flying waiter then highly polished all the glasses he had brought, and the immovable waiter looked through them. The flying waiter then flew across Hoban for the soup, and flew back again, and then took another flight for the maid-dish, and flew back again, and then took another flight for the joint and poultry, and flew back again, and between whiles took supplementary flights for a great variety of articles, as it was discovered from time to time that the immovable waiter had forgotten them all. But, let the flying waiter cleave the air as he might, he was always reproached on his return by the immovable waiter for bringing fog with him, and being out of breath. At the conclusion of the repast, by which time the flying waiter was severely blown, the immovable waiter gathered up the tablecloth under his arm with a grand air, and having sternly, not to say with indignation, looked on at the flying waiter while he set the clean glasses round, directed a valedictory glance towards Mr. Grugius, conveying, "'Let it be clearly understood between us that the reward is mine, and that nil is the claim of this slave, and pushed the flying waiter before him out of the room. It was like a highly finished miniature painting, representing my lords of the circumlocution department, commandership-in-chief of any sort government. It was quite an edifying little picture to be hung on the line in the National Gallery. 
As the fog had been the proximate cause of this sumptuous repast, so the fog served for its general source. To hear the outdoor clerks sneezing, wheezing, and beating their feet on the gravel was a zest far surpassing Dr. Kitchener's. To bid, with a shiver, the unfortunate flying waiter shut the door, before he had opened it, was a condiment of a profounder flavour than Harvey's. And here let it be noticed, parenthetically, that the leg of this young man, in its application to the door, evinced the finest sense of touch, always preceding himself and tray, with something of an angling air about it, by some seconds, and always lingering after he and the tray had disappeared, like Macbeth's leg, when accompanying him off the stage with reluctance to the assassination of Duncan. The host had gone below to the cellar, and had brought up bottles of ruby straw-coloured and golden drinks, which had ripened long ago in lands where no fogs are, and had since lain slumbering in the shade. Sparkling and tingling after so long a nap, they pushed at their corks to help the corkscrew, like prisoners helping rioters to force their gates, and danced out gaily. If P. J. T. in 1747, or any other year of his period, drank such wines, then for a certainty P. J. T. was pretty jolly too. Externally Mr. Grugius showed no signs of being mellowed by these glowing vintages. Instead of his drinking them, they might have been poured over him in his highly dried snuff form, and run to waste, for any lights and shades they caused to flicker over his face. Neither was his manner influenced. But in his wooden way he had observant eyes for Edwin, and when at the end of the dinner he motioned Edwin back to his own easy chair in the fireside corner, and Edwin sank luxuriously into it after very brief remonstrance, Mr. Grugius, as he turned his head round towards the fire too, and smoothed his head and face, might have been seen looking at his visitor between his smoothing fingers. "'Bazard,' said Mr. Grugius, suddenly turning to him, "'I follow you, sir,' returned Bazard, who had done his work of consuming meat and drink in a workmanlike manner, though mostly in speechlessness. "'I drink to you, Bazard, Mr. Edwin. Success to Mr. Bazard.' "'Success to Mr. Bazard,' echoed Edwin, with a totally unfounded appearance of enthusiasm, and with the unspoken addition, "'What in, I wonder?' "'And may,' pursued Mr. Grugius, "'I am not at liberty to be definite. "'May, my conversational powers are so very limited "'that I know I shall not come well out of this. "'May, it ought to be put imaginatively, "'but I have no imagination. "'May, the thorn of anxiety is as nearly the mark "'as I am likely to get. "'May it come out at last.' Mr. Bazzard, with a frowning smile at the fire, put a hand into his tangled locks, as if the thorn of anxiety were there, then into his waistcoat, as if it were there, then into his pockets, as if it were there. In all these movements he was closely followed by the eyes of Edwin, as if that young gentleman expected to see the thorn in action. It was not produced, however. 
and Mr. Bazzard merely said, "'I follow you, sir, and I thank you.' "'I am going,' said Mr. Grugius, jingling his glass on the table with one hand, and bending aside under cover of the other to whisper to Edwin, "'to drink to my ward. But I put Bazzard first. He mightn't like it else.' This was said with a mysterious wink or what would have been a wink if, in Mr. Grugius's hands, it could have been quick enough. So Edwin winked responsively, without the least idea what he meant by doing so. "'And now,' said Mr. Grugius, "'I devote a bumper to the fair and fascinating Miss Rosa Bazard. The fair and fascinating Miss Rosa. I follow you, sir.' said Bazard, and I pledge you. And so do I, said Edwin. Lord bless me, cried Mr. Grugius, breaking the blank silence which of course ensued, though why these pauses should come upon us when we have performed any small social rite, not directly inducive of self-examination or mental despondency, who can tell? I am a particularly angular man, and I fancy, if I may use the word, not having a morsel of fancy, that I could draw the picture of a true lover's state of mind to-night. "'Let us follow you, sir,' said Bazard, "'and have the picture.' "'Mr. Edwin will correct it where it's wrong,' resumed Mr. Grugius, "'and will throw in a few touches from the life.' I dare say it is wrong in many particulars, and wants many touches from the life. For I was born a chip, and have neither soft sympathies nor soft experiences. Well, I hazard the guess that the true lover's mind is completely permeated by the beloved object of his affections. I hazard the guess that her dear name is precious to him, cannot be heard or repeated without emotion, and is preserved sacred. If he has any distinguishing appellation of fondness for her, it is reserved for her, and is not for common ears. A name that would be a privilege to call her by, being alone with her own bright self, it would be a liberty, a coldness, an insensibility, almost a breach of good faith, to flaunt elsewhere. It was wonderful to see Mr. Grugius sitting bold upright, with his hands on his knees, continuously chopping this discourse out of himself, much as a charity boy with a very good memory might get his catechism said and evincing no correspondent emotion whatever, unless in a certain occasional little tingling perceptible at the end of his nose. "'My picture,' Mr. Grugius proceeded, "'goes on to represent, under correction from you, Mr. Edwin, the true lover as ever impatient to be in the presence or vicinity of the beloved object of his affections.' as caring very little for his case in any other society, 
and as constantly seeking that. If I was to say seeking that as a bird seeks its nest, I should make an ass of myself, because that would trench upon what I understand to be poetry, and I am so far from trenching upon poetry at any time, that I never, to my knowledge, got within ten thousand miles of it. And I am, besides, totally unacquainted with the habits of birds, except the birds of Staple Inn, who seek their nests on ledges, and in gutter-pipes, and chimney-pots, not constructed for them by the beneficent hand of nature. I beg, therefore, to be understood as foregoing the bird's nest. But my picture does represent the true lover as having no existence separate from that of the beloved object of his affections, and as living at once a doubled life and a halved life. And if I do not clearly express what I mean by that, it is either for the reason that having no conversational powers I cannot express what I mean, or that having no meaning I do not mean what I fail to express, which, to the best of my belief, is not the case. Edwin had turned red, and turned white as certain points of this picture came into the light. He now sat looking at the fire, and bit his lip. "'The speculations of an angular man,' resumed Mr. Grugius, still sitting and speaking exactly as before, "'are probably erroneous on so globular a topic. But I figure to myself, subject as before to Mr. Edwin's correction, that there can be no coolness, no lassitude, no doubt, no indifference, no half-fire and half-smoke state of mind in a real lover. Pray, am I at all near the mark in my picture? As abrupt in his conclusion as in his commencement and progress, he jerked this inquiry at Edwin, and stopped where one might have supposed him to be in the middle of his oration. "'I, I should say, sir,' stammered Edwin, "'as you refer the question to me—' "'Yes,' said Mr. Grugius, "'I refer it to you as an authority.' "'I should say, then, sir,' Edwin went on, embarrassed, "'that the picture you have drawn is generally correct, "'but I submit that perhaps—' you may be rather hard upon the unlucky lover. Likely so, assented Mr. Grugius, likely so. I am a hard man in the grain. He may not show, said Edwin, all he feels, or he may not. There he stopped so long to find the rest of his sentence that Mr. Grugius rendered his difficulty a thousand times the greater by unexpectedly striking in with, no, to be sure, he may not. After that they all sat silent, the silence of Mr. Bazard being occasioned by slumber. His responsibility is very great, though, said Mr. Grugius at length with his eyes on the fire. Edwin nodded assent with his eyes on the fire. And let him be sure that he trifles with no one said Mr. Grugius, neither with himself 
nor with any other. Edwin bit his lip again, and still sat looking at the fire. He must not make a plaything of a treasure. Woe betide him if he does. Let him take that well to heart, said Mr. Grugius. Though he said these things in short sentences, much as the suppositious charity-boy just now referred to might have repeated a verse or two from the book of Proverbs, there was something dreamy, for so literal a man, in the way in which he now shook his right forefinger at the live coals in the grate, and again fell silent. But not for long. As he sat upright and stiff in his chair, he suddenly wrapped his knees like the carved image of some queer joss or other coming out of its reverie, and said, "'We must finish this bottle, Mr. Edwin. Let me help you. I'll help Bazard too, though he is asleep. He mightn't like it else.' He helped them both, and helped himself and drained his glass, and stood it bottom upward on the table, as though he had just caught a blue-bottle in it. "'And now, Mr. Edwin,' he proceeded, wiping his mouth and hands upon his handkerchief, "'to a little piece of business. You received from me the other day a certified copy of Miss Rosa's father's will. You knew its contents before.' "'But you received it from me as a matter of business. "'I should have sent it to Mr. Jasper, "'but for Miss Rosa's wishing it to come straight to you in preference. "'You received it?' "'Quite safely, sir.' "'You should have acknowledged its receipt,' said Mr. Grugius. "'Business being business all the world over. "'However, you did not.' I meant to have acknowledged it when I first came in this evening. Not a business-like acknowledgment, returned Mr. Grugius. However, let that pass. Now, in that document, you have observed a few words of kindly allusion to its being left to me to discharge a little trust, confided to me in conversation, at such time as I, in my discretion, may think best. Yes, sir. Mr. Edwin, it came into my mind just now, when I was looking at the fire, that I could, in my discretion, acquit myself of that trust at no better time than the present. Favour me with your attention. Half a minute. He took a bunch of keys from his pocket, singled out by the candle-light the key he wanted, and then with a candle in his hand went to a bureau or escritoire, unlocked it, touched the spring of a little secret drawer, and took from it an ordinary ring-case made for a single ring. With this in his hand he returned to his chair. As he held it up for the young man to see, his hand trembled. "'Mr. Edwin!' This rose of diamonds and rubies, delicately set in gold, was a ring belonging to Miss Rosa's mother. It was removed from her dead hand in my presence, with such distracted grief as I hope it may never be my lot to contemplate again. Hard man as I am, 
I am not hard enough for that. See how bright these stones shine, opening the case. And yet the eyes that were so much brighter, and that so often looked upon them with a light and a proud heart, have been ashes among ashes, and dust among dust some years. If I had any imagination, which it is needless to say I have not, I might imagine that the lasting beauty of these stones was almost cruel. He closed the case again as he spoke. The ring was given to the young lady who was drowned so early in her beautiful and happy career by her husband when they first plighted their faith to one another. It was he who removed it from her unconscious hand, and it was he who, when his death drew very near, placed it in mine. The trust in which I received it was that you and Miss Rosa growing to manhood and womanhood, and your betrothal prospering and coming to maturity, I should give it to you to place upon her finger. Failing those desired results, it was to remain in my possession. Some trouble was in the young man's face, and some indecision was in the action of his hand, as Mr. Grugius, looking steadfastly at him, gave him the ring. "'Your placing it on her finger,' said Mr. Grugius, "'will be the solemn seal upon your strict fidelity to the living and the dead. "'You are going to her?' to make the last irrevocable preparations for your marriage. Take it with you. The young man took the little case and placed it in his breast. If anything should be amiss, if anything should be even slightly wrong between you, if you should have any secret consciousness that you are committing yourself to this step, for no higher reason than because you have long been accustomed to look forward to it. Then, said Mr. Grugius, I charge you once more, by the living and by the dead, to bring that ring back to me. Here Bazard awoke himself by his own snoring, and, as is usual in such cases, sat apoplectically staring at vacancy, as defying vacancy to accuse him of having been asleep. "'Bazard,' said Mr. Grugius, harder than ever. "'I follow you, sir,' said Bazard, "'and I have been following you. "'In discharge of a trust, "'I have handed Mr. Edwin Drood "'a ring of diamonds and rubies, you see.' Edwin reproduced the little case and opened it, and Bazard looked into it. "'I follow you both, sir,' returned Bazard, "'and I witness the transaction.' Evidently anxious to get away and be alone, Edwin Drood now resumed his outer clothing, muttering something about time and appointments. The fog was reported no clearer by the flying waiter, who alighted from a speculative flight in the coffee interest, but he went out into it and Bazard, after his manner, followed him. 
Mr. Grugius, left alone, walked softly and slowly to and fro for an hour or more. He was restless to-night, and seemed dispirited. "'I hope I have done right,' he said. "'The appeal to him seemed necessary. "'It was hard to lose the ring, "'and yet it must have gone from me very soon.' "'He closed the empty little drawer with a sigh, "'and shut and locked the escritoire, "'and came back to the solitary fireside. "'Her ring,' he went on, "'will it come back to me? "'My mind hangs about her ring,' very uneasily to-night. But that is explainable. I have had it so long, and I have prized it so much. I wonder. He was in a wondering mood, as well as a restless, for though he checked himself at that point and took another walk, he resumed his wondering where he sat down again. I wonder, for the ten-thousandth time, and what a weak fool I, for what can it signify now? Whether he confided the charge of their orphan child to me, because he knew, good God, how like her mother she has become! I wonder whether he ever so much as suspected that some one doted on her at a hopeless, speechless distance when he struck in and won her. I wonder whether it ever crept into his mind who that unfortunate someone was. I wonder whether I shall sleep to-night. At all events, I will shut out the world with the bedclothes and try. Mr. Grugius crossed the staircase to his raw and foggy bedroom and was soon ready for bed. Dimly catching sight of his face in the misty looking-glass, he held his candle to it for a moment. A likely someone, you, to come into anybody's thoughts in such an aspect, he exclaimed. There, there, there. Get to bed, poor man, and cease to jabber. With that, he extinguished his light, pulled up the bedclothes around him, and with another sigh shut out the world. And yet there are such unexplored romantic nooks in the unlikeliest men, that even old tinderous and touchwoody P. J. T. possibly jabbered thus, at some odd times, in or about 1747. End of chapter 11 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during 2008. Chapter 12 of The Mystery of Edwin Drood This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Alan Chant The Mystery of Edwin Drood The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens Chapter 12 A Night with Durdles 
when Mr. Sapsea has nothing better to do, towards evening, and finds the contemplation of his own profundity becoming a little monotonous, in spite of the vastness of the subject, he often takes an airing in the cathedral close and thereabout. He likes to pass the churchyard with a swelling air of proprietorship, and to encourage in his breast a sort of benignant landlord feeling, in that he has been bountiful towards that meritorious tenant, Mrs. Sapsea, and has publicly given her a prize. He likes to see a stray face or two looking in through the railings, and perhaps reading his inscription. Should he meet a stranger coming from the churchyard with a quick step, he is morally convinced that the stranger is, with a blush retiring, as monumentally directed. Mr. Sapsea's importance has received enhancement, for he has become mayor of Cloisterham. Without mayors, and many of them, it cannot be disputed that the whole framework of society—Mr. Sapsea is confident that he invented that forcible figure—would fall to pieces. Mayors have been knighted for going up with addresses, explosive machines intrepidly discharging shot and shell into the English grammar. Mr. Sapsea may go up with an address. Rise, Sir Thomas Sapsea. Of such is the salt of the earth. Mr. Sapsea has improved the acquaintance of Mr. Jasper since their first meeting to partake of port, epitaph, backgammon, beef, and salad. Mr. Sapsea has been received at the gatehouse with kindred hospitality, and on that occasion Mr. Jasper seated himself at the piano and sang to him, tickling his ears, figuratively, long enough to present a considerable area for tickling. What Mr. Sapsea likes in that young man is, that he is always ready to profit by the wisdom of his elders, and that he is sound, sir, at the core, in proof of which he sang to Mr. Sapsea that evening, no kickshaw ditties, favourites with national enemies, but gave him the genuine George the Third home-brewed, exhorting him as my brave boys to reduce to a smashed condition all other islands but this island, and all continents, peninsulas, isthmuses, promontories, and other geographical forms of land soever, besides sweeping the seas in all directions. In short, he rendered it pretty clear that Providence made a distinct mistake in originating so small a nation of hearts of oak, and so many other verminous peoples. Mr. Sapsea, walking slowly this moist evening near the churchyard, with his hands behind him, on the lookout for a blushing and retiring stranger, turns a corner, and comes instead into the goodly presence of the dean, conversing with the verger and Mr. Jasper. Mr. Sapsea makes his obeisance, and is instantly stricken far more ecclesiastical than any Archbishop of York or Canterbury. "'You are evidently going to write a book about us, Mr. Jasper,' quoth the Dean. "'To write a book about us? Well, we are very ancient, and we ought to make a good book. We are not so richly endowed in possessions as in age.' But perhaps you will put that in your book, amongst other things, and call attention to our wrongs. Mr. Tope, as in duty bound, is greatly entertained by this. 
"'I really have no intention at all, sir,' replies Jasper, "'of turning author or archaeologist. "'It is but a whim of mine, and even for my whim, "'Mr. Sapsea here is more accountable than I am.' "'How so, Mr. Mayor?' says the Dean, "'with a nod of good-natured recognition of his fetch. "'How is that, Mr. Mayor?' "'I am not aware,' Mr. Sapsea remarks, looking about him for information, "'to what the very reverend the Dean does me the honour of referring,' and then falls to studying his original in minute points of detail. "'Durdles?' Mr. Tope hints. "'Ah!' the Dean echoes. "'Durdles! Durdles!' "'The truth is, sir,' explains Jasper, that my curiosity in the man was first really stimulated by Mr. Sapsea. Mr. Sapsea's knowledge of mankind and power of drawing out whatever is recluse or odd around him first led to my bestowing a second thought upon the man, though, of course, I had met him constantly about. You would not be surprised by this, Mr. Dean, if you had seen Mr. Sapsea deal with him in his own parlour, as I did. "'Oh!' cries Sapsea, picking up the ball thrown to him with ineffable complacency and pomposity. "'Yes, yes, the very reverend the Dean refers to that. Yes, I happened to bring Durdles and Mr. Jasper together. I regard Durdles.' as a character a character mr sapsea that with a few skilful touches you turn inside out says jasper nay not quite that returns the lumbering auctioneer i may have a little influence over him perhaps and a little insight into his character perhaps the very reverend the dean will please to bear in mind that I have seen the world. Here Mr. Sapsea gets a little behind the dean to inspect his coat-buttons. Well, says the dean, looking about him to see what is become of his copyist, I hope, Mr. Mayor, you will use your study and knowledge of Durdles to the good purpose of exhorting him not to break our worthy and respected choir-master's neck. We cannot afford it. His head and voice are much too valuable to us. Mr. Tope is again highly entertained, and having fallen into respectful convulsions of laughter, subsides into a differential murmur, importing that surely any gentleman would deem it a pleasure and an honour to have his neck broken, in return for such a compliment from such a source. "'I will take it upon myself, sir,' observes Sapsea loftily, "'to answer for Mr. Jasper's neck. "'I will tell Durdles to be careful of it. "'He will mind what I say. "'How is it at present endangered?' he inquires, "'looking about him with magnificent patronage. "'Only by my making a moonlight expedition with Durdles "'among the tombs, vaults, towers, and ruins,' returns Jasper. You remember suggesting, when you brought us together, that, as a lover of the picturesque, it might be worth my while. 
"'I remember,' replies the auctioneer, and the solemn idiot really believes that he does remember. "'Profiting by your hint,' pursues Jasper, "'I have had some day-rambles with the extraordinary old fellow, and we are to make a moonlight hole-and-corner exploration to-night.' "'And here he is,' says the dean. Durdles, with his dinner bundle in his hand, is indeed beheld slouching towards them. Slouching nearer, and perceiving the dean, he pulls off his hat, and is slouching away with it under his arm when Mr. Sapsey stops him. "'Mind you take care of my friend,' is the injunction Mr. Sapsey lays upon him. "'What friend of yourn is dead?' asks Durdles. "'No orders has come in for any friend of yourn.' "'I mean my live friend there.' "'Oh, him,' says Durdles, "'he can take care of himself, can Mr. Jasper.' "'But do you take care of him too?' says Sapsey. "'Whom Durdles, there being command in his tone, "'surlily surveys from head to foot.' with submission to his reverence the dean if you'll mind what concerns you mr sapsey durdles he'll mind what concerns him you're out of temper says mr sapsey winking to the company to observe how smoothly he will manage him my friend concerns me and mr jasper is my friend and you are my friend "'Don't you get into a bad habit of boasting,' retorts Durdles, with a grave cautionary nod. "'It'll grow upon you.' "'You are out of temper,' says Sapsey again, reddening, but again winking to the company. "'I own to it,' returns Durdles. "'I don't like liberties.' Mr. Sapsey winks a third wink to the company, as who should say— I think you will agree with me that I have settled his business, and stalks out of the controversy. Durdles then gives the dean a good evening, and adding, as he puts his hat on, You'll find me at home, Mr. Jasper, as agreed, when you want me. I'm a-going home to clean myself. Soon slouches out of sight. This going home to clean himself is one of the man's incomprehensible compromises with inexorable facts, he and his hat and his boots and his clothes never showing any trace of cleaning, but being uniformly in one condition of dust and grit. The lamplighter, now dotting the quiet clothes with specks of light, and running at a great rate up and down his little ladder with that object, his little ladder under the sacred shadow of whose inconvenience generations have grown up, and which all Cloisterham would have stood aghast at the idea of abolishing. The dean withdraws to his dinner, Mr. Tope to his tea, and Mr. Jasper to his piano. There, with no light but that of the fire, he sits chanting choir-music in a low and beautiful voice for two or three hours, in short, until it has been for some time dark, and the moon is about to rise. Then he closes his piano softly, softly changes his coat for a pea-jacket with a goodly wicker-cased bottle in its largest pocket, 
and putting on a low-crowned, flap-brimmed hat, goes softly out. Why does he move so softly to-night? No outward reason is apparent for it. Can there be any sympathetic reason crouching darkly within him? Repairing to Durdle's unfinished house or hole in the city wall, and seeing a light within it, he softly picks his course among the gravestones, monuments, and stony lumber of the yard, already touched here and there sidewise by the rising moon. The two journeymen have left their two great saws sticking in their blocks of stone, and two skeleton journeymen, out of the dance of death, might be grinning in the shadow of their sheltering sentry-boxes, about to slash away at cutting out the gravestones of the next two people destined to die in Cloisterham. Likely enough, the two think little of that now, being alive and perhaps merry. Curious to make a guess at the two, or say, one of the two. Ho! Durdles! The light moves, and he appears with it at the door. He would seem to have been cleaning himself with the aid of a bottle, jug, and tumbler, for no other cleansing instruments are visible in the bare brick room, with rafters overhead and no plastered ceiling, into which he shows his visitor. "'Are you ready?' "'I am ready, Mr. Jasper. Let the old uns come out if they dare, when we go among their tombs. My spirit is ready for em. "'Do you mean animal spirits, or ardent?' "'The one's the t'other,' answers Durdles, "'and I mean em both.' He takes a lantern from a hook, puts a match or two in his pocket wherewith to light it should there be need, and they go out together, dinner bundle and all. Surely an unaccountable sort of expedition. That Durdles himself, who is always prowling among old graves and ruins, like a ghoul, that he should be stealing forth to climb and dive and wander without an object is nothing extraordinary. But that the choir-master, or any one else, should hold it worth his while to be with him, and to study moonlight effects in such company, is another affair. Surely an unaccountable sort of expedition, therefore. "'Where that there mound by the yard gate, Mr. Jasper?' "'I see it. What is it?' "'Lime.' Mr. Jasper stops, and waits for him to come out, for he lags behind. "'What you call quick-lime?' "'Aye,' says Durdles. "'Quick enough to eat your boots, with a little handy stirring, quick enough.' to eat your bones. They go on, presently passing the red windows of the traveller's tuppany, and emerging into the clear moonlight of the monk's vineyard. This crossed, they come to Minor Cannon Corner, of which the greater part lies in shadow until the moon shall rise higher in the sky. The sound of a closing house-door strikes their ears, and two men come out, these are Mr. Crisparkle and Neville. Jasper, with a strange and sudden smile upon his face, lays the palm of his hand upon the breast of Durdles, stopping him where he stands. At that end of Minor Cannon Corner, the shadow is profound in the existing state of the light. 
At that end, too, there is a piece of old dwarf wall breast-high, the only remaining boundary of what was once a garden, but is now the thoroughfare. Jasper and Durdles would have turned this wall in another instant, but stopping so short, stand behind it. "'These two are only sauntering,' Jasper whispers. "'They will go out into the moonlight soon. Let us keep quiet here, or they will detain us, or want to join us, or what not.' Durdles nods assent, and falls to munching some fragments from his bundle. Jasper folds his arms upon the top of the wall, and, with his chin resting on them, watches. He takes no note whatever of the minor canon, but watches Neville, as though his eyes were at the trigger of a loaded rifle, and he had covered him, and were going to fire. A sense of destructive power is so expressed in his face that even Durdles pauses in his munching, and looks at him with an unmunched something in his cheek. Meanwhile Mr. Crisparkle and Neville walk to and fro, quietly talking together. What they say cannot be heard consecutively, but Mr. Jasper has already distinguished his own name more than once. "'This is the first day of the week,' Mr. Crisparkle can be distinctly heard to observe as they turn back. "'And the last day of this week is Christmas Eve.' "'You may be certain of me, sir.' The echoes were favourable at those points, but as the two approach the sound of their talking becomes confused again. The word confidence shattered by the echoes, but still capable of being pieced together, is uttered by Mr. Crisparkle. As they draw still nearer, this fragment of a reply is heard. "'Not deserved yet.' That shall be, sir. As they turn away again, Jasper again hears his own name in connection with the words from Mr. Crisparkle. Remember that I said I answered for you confidently. Then the sound of their talk becomes confused again, they halting for a little while, and some earnest action on the part of Neville succeeding. When they move once more, Mr. Crisparkle is seen to look up at the sky and to point before him. They then slowly disappear, passing out into the moonlight at the opposite end of the corner. It is not until they are gone that Mr. Jasper moves, but then he turns to Durdles and bursts into a fit of laughter. Durdles, who still has that suspended something in his cheek, and who sees nothing to laugh at, stares at him until Mr. Jasper lays his face down on his arms to have his laugh out. Then Durdles bolts the something, as if desperately resigning himself to indigestion. Among those secluded nooks there is very little stir of movement after dark. There is little enough in the high tide of the day, but there is next to none at night. Besides that the cheerfully frequented High Street lies nearly parallel to the spot, the old cathedral rising between the two, and is the natural channel in which the cloisterum traffic flows. A certain awful hush pervades the ancient pile, the cloisters and the churchyard after dark, which not many people care to encounter. Ask the first hundred citizens of cloisterum, met at random in the streets at noon, if they believed in ghosts, they would tell you no. 
but put them to choose at night between these eerie precincts and the thoroughfare of shops, and you would find that ninety-nine declared for the longer round and the more frequented way. The cause of this is not to be found in any local superstition that attaches to the precincts, albeit a mysterious lady with a child in her arms and a rope dangling from her neck has been seen flitting about there by sundry witnesses as intangible as herself. But it is to be sought in the innate shrinking of dust with the breath of life in it, from dust out of which the breath of life has passed. Also, in the widely diffused, and almost as widely unacknowledged, reflection, if the dead do, under any circumstances, become visible to the living, these are such likely surroundings for the purpose that I, the living, will get out of them as soon as I can. Hence, when Mr. Jasper and Durdles paused to glance around them, before descending into the crypt by a small side-door, of which the latter has a key, the whole expanse of moonlight in their view is utterly deserted. One might fancy that the tide of life was stemmed by Mr. Jasper's own gatehouse. The murmur of the tide is heard beyond, but no wave passes the archway over which his lamp burns red behind his curtain, as if the building were a lighthouse. They enter, locking themselves in, descend the rugged steps and are down in the crypt. The lantern is not wanted, for the moonlight strikes in at the groined windows bare of glass, the broken frames for which cast patterns on the ground. The heavy pillars which support the roof engender masses of black shade, but between them there are lanes of light. Up and down these lanes they walk, Durdles discoursing on the oldens he yet counts on disinterring, and slapping a wall in which he considers a whole family on em to be stoned and earthed up, just as if he were a familiar friend of the family. The taciturnity of Durdles is for the time overcome by Mr. Jasper's wicker bottle, which circulates freely, in the sense, that is to say, that its contents enter freely into Mr. Durdles' circulation, while Mr. Jasper only rinses his mouth once, and casts forth the rinsing. They are to ascend the great tower. On the steps by which they rise to the cathedral, Durdles pauses for new store of breath. The steps are very dark, but out of the darkness they can see the lanes of light they have traversed. Durdles seats himself upon a step. Mr. Jasper seats himself upon another. The odour from the wicker bottle, which has somehow passed into Durdles' keeping, soon intimates that the cork has been taken out. But this is not ascertainable through the sense of sight, since neither can descry the other, and yet in talking they turn to one another, as though their faces could commune together. "'This is good stuff, Mr. Jasper.' "'It is very good stuff, I hope. I bought it on purpose.' "'They don't show, you see, the old uns don't, Mr. Jasper.' It would be a more confused world than it is, if they could. "'Well, it would lead towards a mixing of things,' Durdles acquiesces, pausing on the remark, 
as if the idea of ghosts had not previously presented itself to him in a merely inconvenient light, domestically or chronologically. "'But do you think there may be ghosts of other things, though not of men and women?' "'What things?' "'Flower-beds and watering-pots? Horses and harness?' "'No. Sounds.' "'What sounds?' "'Cries.' "'What cries do you mean?' "'Chairs to mend?' "'No, I mean screeches. Now I'll tell you, Mr. Jasper. Wait a bit until I put the bottle right.' Here the cork is evidently taken out again and replaced again. "'There!' now it's right this time last year only a few days later i happened to have been doing what was correct by the season in the way of giving it the welcome it had a right to expect when them town boys set on me at their worst at length i gave em the slip and turned in here and here i fell asleep and what woke me the ghost of a cry the ghost of one terrific shriek, which shriek was followed by the ghost of the howl of a dog, a long, dismal, woeful howl, such as a dog gives when a person's dead. That was my last Christmas Eve. What do you mean? is the very abrupt, and one might say fierce retort. I mean I made inquiries everywhere about and that no living ears but mine heard either that cry or that howl. So I say they was both ghosts, though why they came to me I've never made out. "'I thought you were another kind of man,' says Jasper scornfully. "'So I thought myself,' answers Durdles, with his usual composure. "'And yet I was picked out for it.' Jasper had risen suddenly when he asked him what he meant, and he now says, "'Come, we shall freeze here. Lead the way.' Durdles complies, not over-steadily, opens the door at the top of the steps with the key he has already used, and so emerges on the cathedral level, in a passage at the side of the chancel. Here the moonlight is so very bright again, that the colours of the nearest stained-glass window are thrown upon their faces. The appearance of the unconscious Durdles, holding the door open for his companion to follow, as if from the grave, is ghastly enough, with a purple hand across his face, and a yellow splash upon his brow. But he bears the close scrutiny of his companion in an insensible way, although it is prolonged while the latter fumbles among his pockets, for a key confided to him that will open an iron gate, so to enable them to pass to the staircase of the great tower. "'That and the bottle are enough for you to carry,' he says, giving it to Durdles. "'Hand your bundle to me. I am younger and longer-winded than you.' Durdles hesitates for a moment between bundle and bottle, but gives the preference to the bottle as being by far the better company, and consigns the dry weight to his fellow explorer. Then they go up the winding staircase of the great tower, toilsomely turning and turning, and lowering their heads to avoid the stairs above, or the rough stone pivot around which they twist. 
Durdles has lighted his lantern by drawing from the cold, hard wall a spark of that mysterious fire which lurks in everything, and, guided by this speck, they clamber up among the cobwebs and the dust. Their way lies through strange places. Twice or thrice they emerge into level, low-arched galleries whence they can look down into the moonlit nave, and where Durdles, waving his lantern, waves the dim angels' heads upon the corbels of the roof, seeming to watch their progress. Anon they turn into narrower and steeper staircases, and the night air begins to blow upon them, and the chirp of some startled jackdaw or frightened rook precedes the heavy beating of wings in a confined space, and the beating down of dust and straws upon their heads. At last, leaving their light behind a stair, for it blows fresh up here. They look down on Cloisterham, fair to see in the moonlight. Its ruined habitations and sanctuaries of the dead at the tower's base. Its moss-softened red-tiled roofs and red-brick houses of the living, clustered beyond. Its river winding down from the mist on the horizon, as though that were its source, and already heaving with a restless knowledge of its approach towards the sea. Once again an unaccountable expedition this. Jasper, always moving softly with no visible reason, contemplates the scene, and especially that stillest part of it which the cathedral overshadows. But he contemplates Durdles quite as curiously, and Durdles is by times conscious of his watchful eyes. Only by times, because Durdles is growing drowsy. As aeronauts lighten the load they carry when they wish to rise, similarly Durdles has lightened the wicker bottle in coming up. Snatches of sleep surprise him on his legs, and stop him in his talk. A mild fit of calenture seizes him, in which he deems that the ground so far below is on a level with the tower, and would as leaf walk off the tower into the air as not. Such is his state when they begin to come down and as aeronauts make themselves heavier when they wish to descend. Similarly, Durdles charges himself with more liquid from the wicker bottle, that he may come down the better. The iron gate attained and locked, but not before Durdles has tumbled twice, and cut an eyebrow open once. They descend into the crypt again, with the intent of issuing forth as they entered. But while returning among those lanes of light, Durdles becomes so very uncertain, both of foot and speech, that he half drops, half throws himself down by one of the heavy pillars, scarcely less heavy than itself, and indistinctly appeals to his companion for forty winks of a second each. "'If you will have it so, or must have it so,' replies Jasper, "'I'll not leave you here.' Take them, while I walk to and fro. Durdles is asleep at once, and in his sleep he dreams a dream. It is not much of a dream, considering the vast extent of the domains of dreamland and their wonderful productions. It is only remarkable for being unusually restless and unusually real. He dreams of lying there asleep, and yet counting his companion's footsteps as he walks to and fro. 
He dreams that the footsteps die away into distance of time and of space, and that something touches him, and that something falls from his hand. Then something chinks and gropes about, and he dreams that he is alone for so long a time that the lanes of light take new directions as the moon advances in her course. From succeeding unconsciousness he pauses into a dream of slow uneasiness from cold, and painfully awakes to a perception of the lanes of light really changed, much as he had dreamed, and Jasper walking among them, beating his hands and feet. Hello! Durdles cries out, unmeaningly alarmed. Awake at last, says Jasper, coming up to him. Do you know that your forties have stretched into thousands? No. They have, though. What's the time? Hark, the bells are going in the tower. They strike four quarters, and then the great bell strikes. Two, cries Durdle, scrambling up. Why didn't you try to wake me, Mr. Jasper? I did. I might as well have tried to wake the dead, your own family of dead, up in the corner there. Did you touch me? Touch you? Yes, shook you. As Durdles recalls that touching something in his dream, he looks down on the pavement and sees the key of the crypt door lying close to where he himself lay. "'I dropped you, did I?' he says, picking it up, and recalling that part of his dream. As he gathers himself up again into an upright position, or into a position as nearly upright as he ever maintains, he is again conscious of being watched by his companion. "'Well,' says Jasper, smiling, "'are you quite ready? Pray don't hurry.' Let me get my bundle right, Mr. Jasper, and I'm with you. As he ties it afresh, he is once more conscious that he is very narrowly observed. What do you suspect me of, Mr. Jasper? he asks, with drunken displeasure. Let them as has any suspicions of Durdles name em. I've no suspicions of you, my good Mr. Durdles but I have suspicions that my bottle was filled with something stiffer than either of us supposed. And I also have suspicions, Jasper adds, taking it from the pavement and turning it bottom upwards, that it's empty. Durdles condescends to laugh at this, continuing to chuckle when his laugh is over, as though remonstrant with himself on his drinking powers. He rolls to the door and unlocks it. They both pass out, and Durdles relocks it and pockets his key. A thousand thanks for a curious and interesting night, says Jasper, giving him his hand. You can make your own way home? I should think so, answers Durdles. If you was to offer Durdles the affront to show him his way home, he wouldn't go home. Durdles wouldn't go home till morning, and then Durdles wouldn't go home. Durdles wouldn't. This with the utmost defiance. Good night, then. Good night, Mr. Jasper. Each is turning his own way, when a sharp whistle rends the silence, and the jargon is yelped out, 
Fifty fifty fen. I catches him out after ten. Fifty fifty fi. Then he don't go. Then I shy. Fifty fifty fake cock warning. Instantly afterwards, a rapid shower of stones rattles at the cathedral wall, and the hideous small boy is beheld opposite, dancing in the moonlight. What? Is that baby devil on the watch there? cries Jasper in a fury, so quickly roused and so violent, that he seems an older devil himself. I shall shed the blood of that impish wretch. I know I shall do it. Regardless of the fire, though it hits him more than once, he rushes at Deputy, collars him, and tries to bring him across. But Deputy is not to be so easily brought across. With a diabolical insight into the strongest part of his position, he is no sooner taken by the throat than he curls up his legs, forces his assailant to hang him, as it were, and gurgles in his throat, and screws his body, and twists, as already undergoing the first agonies of strangulation. There is nothing for it but to drop him. He instantly gets himself together, backs over to Durdles, and cries to his assailant, gnashing the great gap in front of his mouth with rage and malice, "'I'll blind you, s'elp me! I'll stone your eyes out, s'elp me! If I don't have your eyesight, bellows me!' At the same time dodging behind Durdles, and snarling at Jasper, now from this side of him, and now from that, prepared, if pounced upon, to dart away in all manner of curvilinear directions, and, if run down after all, to grovel in the dust and cry, "'Now hit me when I'm down, do it!' "'Don't hurt the boy, Mr. Jasper,' urges Durdles, shielding him. "'Recollect yourself!' "'He followed us to-night.' when we first came here you lie i didn't replies deputy in his one form of polite contradiction he has been prowling near us ever since you lie i haven't returns deputy i only just come out for me elf when i see you two are coming out of the confederal if i catches him out of ten with the usual rhythm and dance though dodging behind durdles it ain't any fault is it "'Take him home, then,' retorts Jasper, ferociously, though with a strong check upon himself, "'and let my eyes be rid of the sight of you.' Deputy, with another sharp whistle, at once expressing his relief, and his commencement of a milder stoning of Mr. Durdles, begins stoning that respectable gentleman home, as if he were a reluctant ox. Mr. Jasper goes to his gatehouse brooding. And thus, as everything comes to an end, the unaccountable expedition comes to an end, for this time. End of chapter 12 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during March 2008
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.